it probably hasn't escaped your attention that uh, mindfulness seems to be a word that seems to be popping up all over the place at the moment. Um, You can even see on some posters on the London Underground advertising courses. Um, It's a word that's come into common currency certainly over the last four to five years and has become, as I say, very ubiquitous in our societies. Particularly with the explosion, obviously, and this is what has fueled this, uh, the explosion of mindfulness-based applications. Mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, mindfulness-based stress reduction being the two most famous ones, starting with mindfulness-based stress reduction. I think... From a Buddhist perspective, what has actually happened with the explosion of mindfulness is it's created almost a monolithic sense of what mindfulness is. It's created a picture about what mindfulness is, which actually what I want to explore with you tonight is some of the nuancing as the way it's seen within this tradition. So much so that what you have been practicing for these last well, it's actually six days rather than seven because we did the first day on concentration. But what have you been practicing for six, six days, primarily focusing on the metta practice, is in fact a mindfulness. Yeah. Now, from the point of view of mindfulness-based stress reduction and cognitive therapy, it doesn't look like mindfulness at all because it's not what they engage in. Yeah. And I can say that from somebody who's obviously inside this whole thing. So what tends to happen is some of the nuancing of what mindfulness is and the different functions of mindfulness get lost so that we get this particular picture which looks, as I say, rather homogenous of what mindfulness is in our societies now, particularly with the secularization of it. So mindfulness from a Buddhist perspective. And the question really is, what is mindfulness from a Buddhist perspective? Well, it's probably not mindfulness if translated properly. (laughs) Don't worry, you won't have to hear this after tomorrow. (laughs) But the word that's being translated, as many of you will probably know, is a Pali word which is sati. It comes from a Sanskrit word which is smirti. But the Pali word sati has much, much more of the connotation of the sense of recollection, recollecting something. If we translate this properly, it comes out something like, it doesn't trip off the tongue quite as easily as mindfulness, but it comes out at something like present moment recollection. This is really what it's indicating. Something that's going on right now, and we're recollecting something in this right now. This is the present moment recollection aspect of it. The word has many connotations um, in its original language, which is about memory and remembrance. It's also about learning, what we learn from this present moment as well. Often some of these connotations get lost in the word mindfulness. I think I might have mentioned to you in one of the other talks that the word mindfulness is actually only invented in 1881. Um, When I say invented, it's actually taken over. Um, and it's taken over out of the Gospels, and taken from a passage in the Gospels, where Christ says to go out and be mindful. 
So it's taken from that context and placed, in other words, from a Christian context into this Buddhist context in 1881 with some of the first translators of the texts. I feel I'm kind of stuck with it now, uh, this word, mindfulness, um, which, as I say, means many things to many people. I mean, I've seen things on mindful gardening. (laughs) I'm sure there'll be mindful beer making soon. Um, or whatever, you know, we can create anything into a mindfulness at the moment. Um, and I think it's because it's become so popular, it's become part of the commercial world, it's become a selling point. And I won't go into all of that, but I think what has happened is a certain degree, I'm not saying necessarily within the applications area, the mindfulness-based applications, certainly within clinical contexts, but certainly I think with the spreading out of the word, there's a kind of flattening of its meaning here. And so we lose all of this um, subtlety and nuancing which is there in the Buddhist understanding of what mindfulness is. Now let's place it in the context of the Buddha's teaching. The word sati um, occurs more times as any, than any other technical term in the whole of the Pali Canon. I think that gives you an idea of its importance within the Buddha's teaching. You know, it's there, the other technical terms are there frequently, but not mentioned so many times as mindfulness, or the word sati. Obviously, I'm going to continue to use this word mindfulness. So it's placed in a kind of really strong position of something within the Buddha's teaching. It's one of his foremost strategies uh, to bring about, to encourage this awakening process. One of the most famous suttas in the whole, sutta, by the way, for those not familiar with this term, is a a discourse. It actually means something in Pali, which means something well said. Uh, And for those of you who are confused about this, it's not the same as sutra. Um, Sutra is a mistranslation of the term sutta when it went from Pali to Sanskrit. And sutra means something quite, quite different. So the word sutta means something well said. So this is the discourse that is well said on the ways of establishing mindfulness. It's known as the Satipatthana Sutta. And the Buddha in this sutta takes us through four stages, four ways that we can establish mindfulness, four dimensions of our experience. These don't even have to be progressive. They're just laid out in a progressive way because of a kind of teaching reason. This is the way they're laid. They deal with different dimensions of human experience. So the first, obviously, the first dimension, which is mindfulness of body. The mindfulness of body. This is so important to the Buddha in another sutta, in another collection. He says that those without mindfulness of body have no mindfulness at all. Those without mindfulness of body will not reach the deathless. The deathless, by the way, is a synonym for being liberated. Yeah. You know, this is how strong he sees the body. Um, we get a feeling, I, or I get an impression sometimes when looking at aspects of later Buddhism, that we get progressively more and more disembodied. Where in the Buddha's early teaching, it's very much embodied. This mind, which is dominating so much of our experience, is an embodied mind. Consciousness is embodied consciousness. The body is not looked at as something 
which is to be pushed away, to be reviled. It's to be seen realistically, and we get passages in the Satipatthana Sutta where it is seen exactly like that. It's a composite phenomena that comes into being and will disappear, it will disintegrate, and we'll be left with bones, and the bones too will disintegrate. There's a kind of realism to this. And so part of the contemplation of the body is contemplation of the body's own dissolution. It's an imaginative way of using the mind. This is considered to be a sati. But the phrase I wanted to come to, which is a phrase that runs throughout all of the Satipatthana, all of the discourses, all of the discourses on mindfulness of body, mindfulness of mind, mindfulness of feeling, and mindfulness of what is called dhammas, which is the mental phenomena that are there. Or there's a, there's a phrase that runs throughout it which is, says, to see the body as body, to see feelings as feelings, to see mind as mind, and to see the dhammas as the dhammas. I won't go into this last one, it's a bit too technical for a, a talk of this length. It sounds like a complete tautology, doesn't it? Body is body, mind is mind, feelings is feelings. What the Buddha is meaning by this is we don't start to embellish it and add something else into it. What do we add into it so, so frequently when we go feelings, body, mind? It's a little word that goes my. (laughs) My body, my mind, my feelings. And also the stuff that's going on in my mind, which is the dhammas. So we add a personalization into something, which the Buddha is trying to indicate, and given what I've said about the self, is actually an impersonal process most of the time. We're getting attached to something, um, which we don't have to, if you like, instigate or instill into our processes, which is the possessive in it. And of course when we instill that possessive into it, it doesn't stop there, does it? Because once that possessive of my enters into it, then we get, well, I would actually say quite a lot of papancha. You know, quite a lot of embroidery, quite a lot of narrative around this body, this mind, these feelings. You know, this is one big part of it of this whole process of proliferation that we engage in so much. So the body is, the Buddha is saying to actually begin to understand the body as process, to see the breathing. You know, this is where he starts. This is why mindfulness of breathing, what is known as anapanasati, you know, the mindfulness of breath, pana, which is breath, is such an important dimension here. It's the starting place. It's the first bodily function, in a sense, we begin to look at in this process. We begin to create an awareness of simply breathing. Now, this is nothing new to you. We've been doing this. In fact, we've just done this. This mindfulness of the breath coming and going. But we can be a bit more curious about it, so the Buddha is saying. We can look at its length. How long is this breath? How short is this breath? Is the in-breath short or is the out-breath short? Is the in-breath long or is the out-breath long? We begin to become curious about the process of breathing. 
What texture does this breath have? Is the in-breath harsh and the out-breath smooth? Or are they both smooth or are they both harsh? Now these might say very simple things, but they're getting us to focus down on this bodily felt sense of experience. We begin to look at the materiality of the body. Now this is done in very ancient ways, which I won't go into here. The composition of the body, in terms of elements. Its solidity, its fluidity, its temperature, which is usually uh, indicated by the notion of fire. These elements just are just translated into motility and temperature, solidity and fluidity that are there within the body that we can observe. So we become aware that the body itself is a composite phenomena. And as a composite phenomena, it's going to go through what composite phenomena do, decline and dissolution. And there's a whole section in the Satipatthana Sutta which is devoted to actually looking at a corpse. Seeing a corpse, watching it disintegrated. This can be done through mental visualisation, in ancient India, this was done by going to the charnel grounds yeah, and actually watching this process yeah, to bring home to us you know, what the body is. So this is the corporeal dimension of our experience, the embodied dimension of our experience. And then we have a dimension of our experience which we focus on, which is the affective dimension. Yeah. The affective dimension, of course, is associated with the feelings which are arising. Pleasant, unpleasant, neither. The Buddha's injunction, again, is to see and experience feeling as feeling. Again, as impersonal phenomena, arising and passing away. Changing, not under our control. I don't control, as I think I said in the brief introduction I gave to you, on the dimension of Vedana and the dimension of feelings, that these are not under our control. I can't help it if I wince when I hear nails being scraped down a blackboard. I can't help it if I experience pain when I put my hand on a hot plate. I don't have any choice in this matter. This is the way experience comes to me. All experience comes toned. And we're watching this effective dimension of our experience. So we can tune into it. These are like four radio channels, the four dimensions that we can tune into at different times. We can tune into the bodily. We can tune into the affective. Uh, We can tune into the next dimension, which is what I call the moodedness. How is your mind? How's your mind right now? Is it light and uplifted? Is it heavy and dull? Is it sleepy and lethargic, which is called a contracted mind? Is it expansive and open? Is it receptive? These are all dimensions of mind. And the one thing that I think we all know, um, well, I hope you do anyway, which is you're always in a mood. (laughs) You're never not in a mood. You know, sometimes those moods are very apparent when you look out the window at the grey skies, you know, when you open the curtains in the morning, and sometimes they're not so readily apparent. 
And so we have to look at them, examine them, find out what that mood is. Actually begin to examine the texture of our moodedness. Because actually what is going to happen is your moodedness is going to colour the world. Your moodedness is going to make it, in a sense, uh, dark or light, depending on that mood. Have you noticed with the mood of, you know, say, irritation or depression or lowered mood states, everything. Nothing can actually lift you out of it. You know, the world seems your mood. Everything is irritating. You know, people are irritating. The day is irritating. The radio is irritating. The news is irritating. Everything is irritating. That's how all-encompassing our moods are. And it's no accident, I think, the Buddha puts at the, the kind of opening paragraph of the Dhammapada, the, um, this collection of aphorisms which I quoted from the other day, that mind is the forerunner of all things. Yeah. With an unwholesome mind, dukkha, he says, will inevitably follow you, just like the the ox's hoof or the wheel follows the ox's hoof on the cart. It's a kind of inevitability to it. You know, mind is the forerunner of all things. With a wholesome mind, we don't get the same thing happening. Yeah. Happiness will follow us. Yeah. So, moodedness. This is another dimension of our experience. Yeah. What we bring to each experience, the mind state that we have with a contracted, unopened mind. Like we can listen to the teachings. Many famous Buddhist texts start off with you know, qualities of listeners. And how is this listener? Is this listener like a bucket turned upside down? <laughs> yeah. Is this listener like a bucket with holes in it? You know, or is this, you know, there's quite a lot more, but I won't go into them all. Is this listener like a, a, a bucket which has no holes and it's not turned upside down and it's receptive to what is ever poured into it? Yeah. Yeah, so there are qualities of mind which either inhibit, for example, even the reception of the teachings. Yeah, I'm sure we all must have experienced, I certainly did in my early days, I certainly was very holy but not in the right way. <laughs> you know, things used to pour in through one ear and certainly out of the other. Um, so much so that some of my Tibetan teachers once said to me, said, I'm really impressed by the speed in which Westerners learn something. I'm not so impressed by the speed in which they forget it. <laughs> you know, so this is that down to receptiveness and moodedness and what we bring to the phenomenon. And finally, there's a kind of cognitive dimension of what's going on, actually, in terms of what make up the processes. So out of these four dimensions of experience, we can tune into them at different times. We can look, for example, on our walking path. And when we go on this walking path, what is the moodedness you're bringing to this whole, whole element of walking? When you sit down, what is the mood that's there? What sensations are arising? That's another question. 
What are the physical, mental sensations? What happens when I get in contact with, for example, the knee hitting the floor, you know, our buttocks sitting on our seats? What are the sensations there? Are they pleasant, unpleasant, or neither? Yeah. What is there in your experience? How is this breath on the body side of it? How is this breath? This breath, not the past breath, not a future breath, but this breath. So notice the question that's there is, how is it at this moment? What is going on at this moment? Now, when we begin to probe even a little bit more deeply, we find that there are different elements to this examination. Once we've begun to establish, begun to establish Mindfulness, there's different elements and different ways of investigating and different necessities, different dimensions of sati, different dimensions of mindfulness, which actually have very different functions within it. The ground base, and actually this is the one almost that all of mindfulness-based applications take as their primary concern initially, which we take. It's absolutely essential. We cannot do without it. And we could translate this as simple awareness. Becoming simply aware of what is there for us. What is arising in this moment? Much of what we do in early stages of Vipassana are exactly that. Actually beginning to just, if you like, touch, palpate, begin to understand what is going on for us. The assumption here, of course, is that we don't know most of the time. And I think it's a very wise assumption. We are not cognizant of our processes. They're often happening extremely fast. And so the job here of mindfulness, in a sense, is to begin to slow things down in order to be able to perceive what is happening in our experience. This is based on usually some dimension of focusing, gathering the mind, which we might term concentration, but which is not a term I actually like very much. So out of that concentrative dimension or this dimension of being able to gather and hold and settle the mind in some way, we can then begin to examine experience. And much of, you know, for example, the simple Vipassana-led meditations I've given you this week have been exactly that. Just examining and beginning to palpate our experience, to really understand what is happening. Adding in another dimension, which often gets missed out in this, which is that we do it kindly. We do it with friendliness. This is not a harshness. It's difficult enough anyway, because we're going to encounter sometimes things that we don't know about or are very unpalatable, or things that we've spent a long time wanting to push away. Thoughts, feelings, emotions, um, that we don't necessarily want to examine. And it's going to be hard enough actually seeing these arise without then adding in another dimension to it, which is this heavy dimension of wanting to beat ourselves up, the the rampant inner critic that gets going on all of this stuff. So much of, obviously, what we've been doing this week as a sati, as another form of mindfulness, which I'll come on to right at the end, is a beginning to turn towards our experience with friendliness. Now, I make a real plea for this. Um, There's a lovely poem by the poet Rilke, 
which, unfortunately, I didn't bring it with me, but it's in German, it's called Wendung, which is usually translated as turning point, I think. And in this poem, um, Rilke says, there goes about the rumor that there is a man who knows how to see things. So much so, and it's you know, very poetically cast, I'm only paraphrasing it here, that everything that falls under his gaze is seen. He says, even animals and everything that steps in front of his gaze is seen and is known to be seen. But it says, then comes a point, then comes a point that he thinks to himself, perhaps it's not enough just to see. Perhaps I have to learn to care and love what I see as well. And I think this could be taken actually in relationship to what we observe in our own minds. It's not simply enough to see. This can be very cold. It can be very harsh. <laughs> Christina has this lovely word, uh, Christina Feldman has this lovely phrase which she calls eyeballing experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all it is is simply eyeballing experience without actually any care, any friendliness, any, one might even add the word love here, although it's not a word that appears in these texts, in approaching what we see. Yeah, so what we're really being encouraged to do here in this simple awareness is begin not just to see things, to become simply aware of them, but beginning to now, in a sense, develop some degree of friendliness towards them. This is this gentle turning towards that I've spoken about. Uh, it's Well, actually, I've used the phrase so many times within the, the meditations. Gently to tw- turning towards our experience, being willing to stand close to our experience without this heavy judgment coming in about what I'm experiencing at this moment in time. So this is kind of a plea for us to soften our relationship to the seen, to the known, that occurs when we are engaged in our ordinary day-to-day experience, when we have those thoughts which we don't necessarily want that arise, just to, in a sense, open ourselves to them, accept them, acknowledge them, and actually befriend them. Things go on on their way much quicker when they're befriended. they stick they have a sticky quality in a way when they're not befriended so this is the first dimension of our experience the second dimension is what's known as protective awareness this is another sati this is another form of sati a dimension of our experience where we protect and particularly it talks about guarding the sense doors here. This would be like, you know, for example, guarding the sense doors would be, you know, to give just one example, a very easy example, the alcoholic who doesn't go in the pub, yeah. doesn't go in the off-license or liquor store, yeah. because they know what's going to happen, or what is likely to happen in those instances. And we can equally guard our senses in the same way. This doesn't mean that we can't appreciate things, but it actually reduces the grasping after things. So we're protecting our senses. We're not actually having those hungry eyes, that hungry tongue and hungry nose for things. 
You know, we go kind of looking for things. As I've said many, many times, you know, things to gratify our senses in some way or another. And so part of the dimension of protection is protecting our senses. You know, not to cut ourselves off. This, is, this would be ridiculous. We are sensory beings. We're embodied beings. This is not what it's about. It's not, um, it's not even what's known in yoga as pratyahara, which actually is the withdrawal of the senses, pulling them back like a, a tortoise withdrawing its limbs. It's not like this even. It's the senses are still engaged, but the craving isn't behind them. Or we're guarding and observant for that craving arising you know, in relationship to the bar of chocolate, to the drink to whatever the sensory phenomena is that we're engaged in. There is another meaning to protective awareness, is that sometimes, um, and again, this requires training and wisdom and understanding, sometimes it's not necessary to go into every dimension of our painful experience at this moment in time. Yeah? Now, there can be a tendency to say, you've got to sit with whatever. Yeah? even your worst possible trauma. This is not a good idea. You know, as I'm sure you're probably aware. So actually, protective awareness also says, actually, no, this is not a good time to go to this, this deepest painful wound. Almost like I was saying to you about the, the meta practice where we don't go to the, you know, the most difficult, difficult person I can think of. You know, simply because it's not a wise idea to do that immediately without establishing yourself initially in understanding, in some skill in the practice, and being able to hold that difficult person with lots of other things which will help to engage in this way. Now, these are not in place at this time, so sometimes you simply have to say to yourself, this is not the time to go there. This is not the time. That doesn't mean never... That's the important point about this, because we're not saying never, we're saying now is not the right time. It is too painful, it is too raw, and in fact it would be too distressing. The point of this practice is not to create great, great distress or further distress in your experience. We have enough of that already. Again, this is partly, again, I hope you hear even within what I'm saying, partly about being kind to yourself. This is not avoidance. This is recognition that something is there, but saying, at this moment in time, this is not a good time to go there. Then there is a form which is known as introspective awareness. If something gets through the sense doors, that painful experience erupts, in our meditation, in a sense, is how to gently remove it. Yeah. Actually take it out. I'm going to give you all the similes in a second with these, because there's lots and lots of similes the Buddha uses, which are probably more graphic and more illustrative than what I'm saying here in trying to detail them out in this more cognitive way. So if something gets through, how do we remove it without causing more pain? This is another job of sati. Sati has, is a very overworked individual. He has lots of different functions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He has this job of being simply aware, has this job, or she has this job of, you know, of 
actually protecting and guarding the sense doors, protecting the mind, protecting it from real pain and distress, which is, could be overwhelming at this point. But it also has the job of, therefore, helping to remove gently what is there that's got through. It's like the backstop. You've got something else behind um, you know, to, to catch the ball when it's gone past the first stop. So this is, the pers- this is the dimension of sati which actually begins to gently remove. I'll give you the, I'll give you the simile that the Buddha uses for this. So it's a really interesting simile. He says he likens this to a surgeon who is trying to remove an arrowhead which is embedded in somebody. And the surgeon, in order to remove this arrowhead, takes a probe and inserts it into the wound and gently, gently moves around the, side, the, the, the arrowhead, basically assessing the dimensions of it and the shape of it in order that the arrowhead can be removed with the least possible damage. Yeah? So this surgeon is gently probing, trying to find the dimensions, if you like, of the problem in order to remove it. Now, the probe here is sati. This is what sati is doing. It's kind of probing the dimensions of what it is that's got through, which is causing the real pain, and how best that can be extracted, how best it can be removed in this case. One further dimension, and I'll give you the rest of the similars. One further dimension of sati is also what is called conceptual reconstruction. Strange, you think that doesn't sound like sati at all. It certainly doesn't sound anything like the simple awareness, which is the basis here, which is deliberate conceptual reconstruction. Well, I'll let you into secret. In a way, that's what you've been doing in inclining your mind towards these people. You've been using a conceptual construction, the phrases to incline the mind into a particular direction and to see even that most difficult person in a slightly different light. Perhaps. might not have occurred. Do it long enough and you'll find that you'll probably get some response from this. There are other ways of conceptually reconstructing things. Configuring them in other ways. I mentioned to a group the other day, sometimes it's very useful um, for example, if you share a wall with somebody and there's a great hammering going on, rather to see it as not them trying to annoy you, which I think is probably one of our most common experiences, isn't it? Those people are really irritating, they're just hammering on their wall. <laughs> Here's a piece of conceptual reconstruction. No, they're not. They're trying to put a shelf up. <laughs> That's all they're trying to do. Generally, what we call annoyance and irritation and these things are people sometimes unmindfully just trying to get on with their lives. Now, I do say unmindfully because that's one of the elements whereby we might have to do something or say something, but it's not generally that people are out to irritate you, to annoy you. They're usually just trying to get on with their lives. And this form of reconstruction obviously helps us to hold things very differently. As I'm, I'm sure you can see this just with this simple example. Yeah. 
I mean, I'm very tempted to say I think it's true of that um, Billy Collins poem about the dog that I read to you. You know, it's a way of trying to hold that situation differently. (laughs) The ever-barking dog. Well, here's a nice fantasy that helps you to hold it very differently. There are other forms of more conceptual ways of using sati, and one of these other more conceptual ways of using sati I mentioned actually in one of the instructions the other day is actually um, what's called a recollection, an anusati, which is the recollection of our own mortality, the recollection of death, the bringing to mind of that. I do add, as I did the other day, that this is not a simply sitting there morbidly brooding about death. You know, oh dear, I'm going to die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not of that sort it's just bringing to mind that actually this moment is precious it's not going to last forever you know, this thing that we call death is uncertain you know, so therefore if we're talking about practice and talking about developing wholesomeness in our lives don't put it off you know, do it now. This is the whole purpose of this recollection of death. It's not, as I say, to sit there kind of crying into a cup of coffee because of the thought of death. <laughs> you know, it's really in the service of life. You know, the thought of death is in the service of life. It's also in the recollection as well. There's one further recollection here that actually it's death that brings meaning to life, strangely. I don't know if you've ever contemplated this fact that it's only because in a sense even if it's not fully acknowledged consciously that we know that we are mortal and therefore have finite choices in this life that make us choose anything isn't it I wouldn't necessarily choose to do this or that if I had I don't know an immortal life an infinite amount of time you know, it's because, in a sense, I can recall, can bring to mind that this life is not endless that makes me choose this over that. It doesn't mean we choose rightly or wisely, but it makes us make choice. And the meanings of our lives are often unfolding in the choices that we make. You know, they're not a kind of given. You know, the meaning is something we create. It's not something that's simply given to us in our lives. We can imagine having an immortal life. I kind of said this a little bit in relationship to the devas the other night when I was talking about the, the six realms of existence. You know, imagine the immortal person. You know, shall I do this today or shall I put it off for a couple of thousand years? Yeah. You know, or I just won't bother at all. Yeah. It's actually, there's, there's an urgency to this. Yeah, in a sense, and I don't mean a kind of striving urgency, but there's an urgency to making our choices, and particularly in relationship to the path, particularly in the relationship if you want to really change your lives. You know, there's an urgency to making those choices, and partly it's called Sanvega, a kind of spiritual urgency, you know, to want to live our lives in a different way. And perhaps that's something that comes through that, this question, how do I want to live because I know there is death? How do I want to live? So 
the contemplation of death, this anusati, is in the service of life. It's not, as I say, brooding about it. So these are the four forms. There are many others, but these are the four major forms of, of sati that we get. As you can see, some of them are a little bit within the kind of common conception of mindfulness as we see it these days. A lot are not. Certainly not this reconstruction, but it's this cognitive reconstruction dimension of it. It's not necessarily there. But let's just run through them again, and I'll give you the similes to finish this evening. We have simple awareness, the ground base of all of the practices, becoming aware of the unfolding of experience in its painfulness and its pleasantness. Whatever is there, beginning to see it, beginning to slow it down, and to beginning to recognize and start to accept. This is absolutely essential. The protective awareness that says some things are too much at this moment and also that the senses need guarding. Otherwise, things can be made worse if we don't protect ourselves in some way. The introspective awareness that, in a sense, we've already had the problem. It's already there. It's already emerged. We've got ourselves into a situation where we can see craving leading... Um, to unwholesome behavior. Um, We can see our our senses moving out. Then protective awareness hasn't been enough. The introspective awareness now is to actually begin to look at it, probe its dimensions, and see what is the most skillful way that in some senses we can deal with with what has already got through here. And finally, there's these ways of reconstructing. There's many other ways. I mean, I've given you two very simple examples, one of which we've engaged in, which is the metta, another one which is around death, which in a way is cognitive. We have to bring it to mind. We have to think what emerges out of that understanding of death. Perhaps it's this sense of spiritual urgency of wanting to change our lives for the better and therefore touching those around us in changing our lives for the better. So these are the four forms. Now, the Buddha gives many, many, many similes in the texts to illustrate these, some of them, I think, which are very, very indicative of these types of awareness. The first simile he uses for mindfulness, he says it's like a man who's in a, long, in a tall tower overlooking a jungle and overlooking a landscape. And what he's doing, he's simply surveying the landscape seeing what is there, seeing what animals are moving to and from, what people are moving through that landscape, watching the colour, watching the cloud formations, watching the different light changes that occur. Now you can see this is a very good simile for simple awareness. This is all we're doing, we're just watching the landscape. I think I've even used that term. Watching the landscapes of our mind. Yeah. A phrase that's often used in MBSR and MBCT, you know, these uh, therapeutic interventions, is watching the weather patterns of your own mind. Yeah. Just beginning to watch those weather patterns. Yeah. Not to condemn them, not to hold on to them, but just to see them. And this is what this surveyor does. He overlooks the whole thing. Another simile that we have is, in fact, we have two versions of this. We have the version of the cow herder. 
in one version, the, the cow herder, and it's during the, the season, the growing season, where everything is growing, and he's got his cows in the field, but there's corn and that growing in the field next door. And what he has to keep doing is keep tapping the cows to get them away from the field um, where the crops are growing. Um, and he has to keep doing this. He has to keep moving the cows back. And it's quite vigilant to do this, to keep the cows in the right field, not straying into other fields and eating the crops here. Now, again, I think what we have here is an image of protective awareness. Yeah? Protecting. Now, it's quite vigilant. It's got to be. It's got to have that dimension of vigilance of being able to stop the cows from moving up, i.e. your senses here, moving out into domains where it can gobble up everything and therefore displease the farmer next door. (laughs) So we have that particular image. Now we have an image, again, which is a, a gentler image, which is the crops have been harvested and the cow herd is now sitting under the under a tree. He's sitting under a tree, and the cows are just roaming, sometimes they're roaming a bit far, so he has to call them back. But he's just sitting under a tree, calling them back. Again, this is a version of attentive awareness that isn't quite so vigilant and doesn't have to be quite so vigilant. Sometimes our minds are settled enough for us not to have to be attentive to everything and seeing where it's going. Other times the mind is a lot more settled. Yeah, and we and we can see, you know, we can see that that particular sense straying over there. It's like calling it back, you know, calling it back yet again. The most famous image of, for protective awareness is the image of a city, a city with six gates, with a, a gatekeeper. The gatekeeper, by the way, is called Sati. <laughs> Um, and Sati, what the job of Sati is to, is to do is to let in the friends of the city and keep out the enemies. Yeah? This is his job, to turn away those who are going to be disruptive to the life of the city, the life of the mind. Sati, sometimes Sati is also seen as a messenger, helping to carry messages through to the king who lives in the city. So it's actually about getting things through, understanding things. Yeah? This is another job of Sati here. Yeah. One more for protective awareness, I think, which is a really interesting one. It's of a man um, who's asked to carry a bowl of precious oil in something like this, full to the brim of precious oil, and he's got to carry it through a marketplace where there's a fair going on. Uh, And it says, it's unfortunately, it's 2,500 years old, so it's a little sexist, but it says there's a beautiful dancing girl in the, in, the, um, in the square. He said, there's all these people jostling, there's a dancing girl, but behind him is a man carrying a sword, and if he drops any of the oil, he's going to have his head lopped off. <laughs> and it says, the, uh, the Buddha says, I think rather rhetorically, he says, would that man stay focused? <laughs> <laughs> Literally, I mean, this is a very good image. Now, just think of it. What actually happens when we get caught up in these very strong desires and very strong cravings is we literally lose our heads. (laughs) We literally lose our heads, both literally and metaphorically, in this sense. 
Now, to stay focused, now this is where often effort and much more effort is required to hold our attention on something when we see these strong desires arising. To stay with the craving, there might be, for example, the desire to look about what's going on, but I might spill the oil. So I don't. I stay focused on what I'm doing with the awareness that that desire is there. Yeah. This would be like that dealing with craving that I spoke about, you know, beginning to surf the craving that we see here. One final metaphor, because we're running out of time, one final metaphor, which is my, actually my favorite, so it's just why I saved it to last. It's called The Parable of the Six Animals. And what it talks about is um, six animals. There's everything from a kind of jackal to a crocodile to a snake to birds, which are tied to strings, um, to some kind of harness or um, something which is binding them, uh, which is all tied to one post and the post is nailed into the ground. And it says what those animals will do, all of them, is they'll all pull for their feeding grounds. All of them will pull in different directions. And it's saying their natural instinct is to want to get back to their own feeding grounds. And what we have is the post, which is keeping them actually present here. And it says after a while, they will struggle, they will flutter, they will try to pull and break away, but eventually they'll start to settle down, these six animals. Now, I don't know if you see where the metaphor's leading. The six animals are the six senses. Yeah? all trying to go for their own particular feeding grounds. Remember the hungry eyes, the hungry ears, and that? They're all trying to go out into their own domains. The post represents sati. The post they're tied to is the post of sati, which holds them tight until they begin to quieten down. So with, if you like, with sati now as the focus the way of holding the mind in a particular way, in a particular place, then we start to get the settling down of the senses. Now what I've hoped to give you tonight is a sense of the richness. And I've only kind of just touched on it. I mean, this could have been the theme of the whole week. The the richness that's involved when we start to talk about mindfulness in this context. Mindfulness is many, many, many things in a Buddhist context. It cannot be pinned down to one definition of what it is. Sati has very different functions, as I hope you've seen. Some of which you will have been employing anyway in this, but some of them have to involve, in a way, separate training of being able to, or separate instruction of being able to direct our minds in certain ways. Now, all of these ways of directing our minds according to some of the traditions that arise slightly later than directly after the Buddha, but it's implicit in it, give rise to sati not just as a phenomena of being able to hold our minds, direct our minds, focus our minds, protect our minds, but also become the source of ethics. And this is a whole dimension that I haven't really touched on yet. One of the other things is that sati is not to be confused with mere attention. That's completely different. 
Sati is always, in this tradition, considered to be what's called a wholesome mental factor. It's always allied to wholesomeness. Even if it's observing what is unwholesome, it can do that in a way which is wholesome. It cares enough, if you like, to be able to hold that unwholesome thought without judgment and with kindness. What is there? It brings in other ethical dimensions. And that really has to be a theme of another retreat, I would say. Um, that whole thing. You know, so hopefully I've begun, I've begun to explore a little bit about the richness of sati within this tradition. I just want to finish off on a poem from somebody I read to you the other night, uh, Fernando Pessoa again, because I think he touches on some of these elements. And certainly the elements of, of simply becoming aware. Let's see if I can find it. <clears throat> live with nostalgia for the moment, even as you live it, we're empty boats, blown forward like loose strands of hair by a long and steady wind, living without knowing what we feel or want. Let's make ourselves aware of this as of a still pond in the midst of a torpid landscape, under a desolate sky, and may our self-awareness no longer be roused by desire. In this way, equal to the whole hour, in all its sweetness, our life, no longer us, will be our pre-wedding, a colour, a fragrance, a swaying of the trees, and death won't come early and it won't come late. What matters is that nothing matters anymore whether fate hangs over us or quietly and obscurely lurks in the distance. is all the same. Here's the moment. Let's be it. What good is thinking? Thinking is to have eyes that are unwell. (laughs) Okay, thank you for your attention. And uh, let's come back at 22 for another sitting just to finish the day. Thank you.